let's hear God's word, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Acts 2, verse 36. Let's once again ask for God's help in a quick word of prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. May the Spirit who descended on the day of Pentecost open our minds and our hearts to receive your word. May he show us the Lord Jesus Christ and showing us this suffering yet triumphant Savior, may we also be made like him, transformed from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're not going to look at the whole sermon that Peter gave on this occasion this evening. What I really want to do is zoom in on what Peter says about the crucifixion of Christ. 
You notice that he mentions that in verse 22. Christ being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And then he mentions it again in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, in those verses, there is a contrast. In fact, there's two contrasts. On the one hand, there's a contrast between God's attitude toward Christ, toward Jesus of Nazareth, and the attitude of the people who are in Jerusalem to whom Peter is speaking quite confrontationally. He is very blunt about it. You crucified him. You crucified him by lawless hands. And Peter has a characteristic part of his sermons where he says this to the people, where he contrasts the attitude of those who crucified the Lord Jesus with the attitude of God. You can find that in chapter 3. You can find it in chapter 4. You can find it in chapter 5. You can find it in chapter 10. Basically, whenever you find Peter preaching, you find him making this point. There's this contrast between how they, how the leaders of the Jewish nation, how they approached Christ versus how God saw him. But there's also a contrast between what they meant to do and what God accomplished through that. And that's very clear in verse 23. Let's look at that one first, and then we'll come back to the other one. Notice what he says in verse 23. Christ was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, that is also an emphasis within the book of Acts. This is something that we hear multiple times. The early church confesses it in chapter 4. Herod and Pontius Pilate with the people of the Jews were gathered together to do to Christ whatever God had previously determined would be done. They thought they were putting an end to him. They thought they were addressing a problem. They thought they were carrying out their plan, their will. But they were only accomplishing what God had already determined would happen. Now that seems like a strange way to preach the gospel, perhaps, to us. He's looking at some of the very people who were involved in the crucifixion of Christ. And he says, that was God's plan all along. Apparently, he's not worried that they're going to say, oh, well, that lets us off the hook. Apparently, he's not worried that they're going to feel, well, if we did God's will, then God can't have anything against us for this. For the Bible for the characters in the Bible, for the authors of the Bible, obviously, ultimately, for God himself. The tension that people talk about between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is clearly overblown. Peter has no hesitation in saying, what you did was wrong. You crucified him by lawless hands. 
and yet at the same time saying that was God's plan. Now, people are sometimes a little bit uncomfortable with that, and the discomfort can arise from more than one source. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with that because they think, well, if that was God's plan, then God is responsible for the wickedness. And so in order to defend God, in order to let God off the hook, they'll deny that God was sovereign. The flip side of that is people who say, well, God wanted me to do it, so it can't be that bad. It would be unfair of God to punish me for doing what, after all, he wanted me to do. Well, how do we answer that? How do we address that particular matter? Well, first of all, you just have to start by noticing Whether we have all the answers or not, the Bible is not shy about saying both things. It's not shy about mashing both things up together in the same verse so you can hardly help but notice. You took him and crucified him by lawless hands. That was God's plan all along. So we have to believe both. We have to believe that human beings are responsible for their sin, that it is wrong, that they can't say, well, God made me do it and use that as an excuse. You are accountable. Of course, at the same time, we're going to say God is not tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. God is not making you sin. And yet, God is accomplishing his purposes even through sin, even through this sin. Now, of course, this theme is deeply embedded in Scripture. You might remember Joseph's brothers in the Old Testament in Genesis. They sold him into slavery. And from slavery, he rose to become prime minister of Egypt, and he rescued the whole family from famine. Well, after their dad dies, the brothers are a little nervous. Maybe Joseph has been biding his time. You know, maybe he's just been waiting till dad is out of the way, and now he's going to get us for what we did to him. And so they come and, you know, talk to Joseph and say, you know, before he died, dad said that you shouldn't be mad at us. Joseph had already forgiven them. Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to save many people alive. Now, did that justify the brothers? Did that let them off the hook? No, you can see their conscience was bothering them. You can see that they were a little uneasy. You can see that they knew they'd been in the wrong. The fear of vengeance is not the same thing as repentance, but it does show that you know you didn't act as you should. So we can hold these things together. We can say human beings are responsible. God is sovereign. The wickedness is not God's doing. The beneficial outcome, that is God's doing. And that balance has several implications. On the one hand, it means, as I've already said, you never get to blame God. You never get to say, well, it all worked out, so what I did was fine. That is not how you tell. Is what you did in keeping with God's law? Okay, then thank God for giving you the grace of obedience. Is what you did against God's law? Then repent of it, even if it did work out well. The rule of our behavior is not God's decree, it's God's command. And there's at least one very practical reason for that. You don't know what God's decree is until after the fact. But you do know what God's command is. You know what God's command is right now. So what is the rule of our behavior? God's command, not God's decree. When are we guilty when we break 
God's command. Now, when we break God's command and God fulfills his decree through us all the same, that doesn't make God the author of sin. We're guilty of the sin that we committed. We're guilty of not measuring up or of overtly transgressing the law of God. But isn't it a mercy that God doesn't let our sin derail his great purpose? Sin is not something that God approves, but sin has not managed to knock God off his throne and take his sovereignty away from him either. God accomplishes his purposes even through human sin, even through the sin of Christ being crucified. If we can approach it right, that's not a confusing truth. That's a comforting truth. We're not approaching it right if we use it as an excuse, but we are approaching it right if we say then, when I can say to God, not my will but thine be done, I can say that in the confidence that that is what will happen. I can say that in the confidence that he used me even when I didn't intend to be used, even when I was in rebellion, even when I was doing the wrong thing. And what does that mean? Well, that means that although you absolutely can and should and must repent of your past sins, you don't have to live destroyed, tormented, swallowed up by regret. Was your sin wrong? Yes, it was. Did God rule and overrule in and through it? Yes, he did. So what are the facts on the ground today? They're the execution of God's purposes. As believers, as those who know this great truth that Peter proclaims here, regret does not have to swallow or consume us. Repentance, yes, absolutely, but not regret. Repentance is being sorry for what we did wrong, hating and turning from sin always more and more. Regret is wishing things had been different. Now, repentance is appropriate. Repentance takes responsibility for what we did wrong. Regret is not appropriate because regret calls into question the wisdom of God's decree. Regret says, I wish God would have had a different plan. That's something to be repented of. That desire, that ambition for God to have done things differently. Who do you think you are to take that approach to the God who brings immeasurable good out of the deepest evil? Now, with all of that being said, I think a word or two of explanation about why does Peter say you've taken him by lawless hands, have crucified him, put to death. Well, first of all, he's emphasizing the guilt of this. This was great wickedness. We read it in our call to worship. The stone which the builders rejected, the same as made the head of the corner. Here was the cornerstone chosen and precious. And not only did they not recognize him, they hated him. They despised him. They conspired to kill him. Now think also about not just the depth of guilt, but think also about the judicial process. How did those 
kangaroo court trials go when the Lord Jesus was arrested? Well, they had hired false witnesses to tell lies about him. And they couldn't even get the false witnesses to agree. They brought him to Pilate. Pilate said, what are the charges against him? They said, well, if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him. Well, what kind of an answer is that? You're asking for specifics. What did he do wrong? Tell me when and where and how. Well, if he hadn't done something wrong, we would never have arrested him. That is no answer at all. There's such an illuminating little detail in the narrative there where they won't go into Pilate's judgment seat. They don't want to be ritually defiled lest they be prevented from eating the Passover. They're scrupulous. They're concerned. They're focused on not losing their ritual purity, on not missing out on the festival, a festival that celebrated God's redemption of his people through blood, by the way. But they didn't have any problem with false accusations. They didn't have any problem with conspiracy to commit murder. They didn't have any problem with hijacking the justice system to bring about a manifestly, an openly acknowledged to be unjust result. Pilate knew that they'd turned him over for envy. Do you think Pilate was impressed by the piety, by the godliness of people who wouldn't enter his judgment hall but would bring false accusations against an innocent man? Their religious zeal is worthless. Lawless hands. Well, Pilate has the authority technically, but nobody should have the authority to condemn an innocent person to death. Even if Pilate didn't get in trouble with the Roman Empire, that wasn't in keeping with natural law. That wasn't in keeping with God's law. What about the soldiers who just followed orders and beat Christ and led him out to the place of crucifixion and nailed him up and poked him in the side with a spear? They were following orders, but they were lawless men. That was not right on any level. So Peter uses that word on purpose. He's emphasizing to them that in the resurrection of Christ, the guilt is great and the violation of every norm is apparent. In order to, there was no legal way, there was no lawful way, there was no proper way to reject Christ and certainly not to have him killed. So in this attitude to Christ, they showed that their hatred of him overruled their sense of fairness, their sense of justice, their sense of honesty. It overruled their morality. It overruled everything that should have been very basic to them. That is an indictment, isn't it? But what will we say if we hear the gospel and we reject it? What will we say if we don't receive the Lord Jesus Christ with open arms? This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. We may not be able to physically participate in the crucifixion of Christ the way these people did, but we don't have any better excuse for rejecting him. We're not going to be able to cover over our guilt for that. By the hands of lawless men, they took him, they crucified him, they killed him. And in that, they showed the depth of their depravity, the 
unlimited nature of the hatred they had towards Christ. They showed that they were dominated by everything other than the fear of God, everything other than belief of the scriptures. And that leads us into the second contrast. There was the contrast between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but there's also this tremendous contrast between God's attitude toward Christ and theirs. What did they do with Christ? Well, they hated him. They took him. They seized him by violence, by lawless hands. They had him crucified. They killed him. Or, as he says again, verse 36, you crucified him. But what was God's attitude towards the Lord Jesus? Well, the Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of his plan and purposes. He was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. But you can say more than that. The one whom they crucified, God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. The one whom they crucified, God made Lord and Christ. They killed the prince of life, or the author of life, as Peter says later on in Acts. But God raised him from the dead. It's already there in Psalm 118 that we read at the beginning. The stone which the builders rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. By whom? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This people, and really everyone who winds up rejecting Christ, have an attitude of contempt, of indifference, or of outright hatred. But that is not God's attitude. God honors the Son. God has committed all judgment to the Son so that all men will honor him even as they honor the Father. The Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father speaks from heaven again in the resurrection and says, This is my beloved Son who has fulfilled all righteousness. He has earned the reward. He has acquired eternal life, not only for himself, but for all of his people. He's welcome in heaven. He's welcome in heaven with a perfect standing because he's done all that was necessary for the salvation of God's chosen ones. You couldn't have a more forceful contrast. And that brings us to raise the question, what is our view of Christ? Now, we may speak about him with respect. We may even speak about him with fondness. But do we really recognize him as Lord and Christ? Well, do we recognize him as Lord? It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord. It's another thing to do what he says. Do we recognize him as Christ? It's one thing to use that as though it were just a last name. It's another thing to depend upon Christ, to trust him to be our prophet, our priest, our king, which all of that is bound up in being anointed and being the Christ, the anointed one, as that means. Those are basically, though, the two attitudes. We can be on God's side with regard to our conception of Christ, our idea of Christ, how we think about Christ and approach him, or... We can be on the side of those who, by wicked hands, crucified and slew him. 
Now, we didn't read this part. But after Peter got to that amazing conclusion, God hath made the same Jesus whom you crucified to be Lord and Christ. They were cut to the heart and they asked what to do to be saved. We've heard a little bit today about the Lord Jesus. But isn't this one of the most amazing things? Just a few days later, 53 days after the crucifixion, here is a representative of Jesus, his messenger personally chosen, handpicked and trained. And what is he doing? In the name of Jesus, he is offering forgiveness. He is offering reconciliation. He is offering salvation and eternal life to the very people who were involved in procuring the crucifixion. What mercy is that? What triumph of grace is that? You know, we might think, well, Jesus will have mercy on a lot of people, but not on those guys. Oh, yes, even on those guys. A great multitude was added to the church that day, to the very people to whom Jesus said, you crucified, to whom Peter said, you crucified Jesus. They were added to the church. They were baptized. They were included in the people of God. Now there's an application for us. We were not present at the crucifixion. We didn't conspire with Caiaphas or with Pilate to bring about the death of Christ. But as the Nicene Creed says, it was for us men, for our salvation. He died for us. In one sense, we did crucify him because it was our sins that made his crucifixion necessary. If we hadn't had sins to be purged, to be washed away by his blood, why would he have died? But we did. And so for us, for us who have sinned, for us who have offended, for us who have resisted the light of the gospel, for us who have not lived up to our privileges, for us who have fallen again and again in a variety of ways, for us whose sin made his death necessary, Christ died to take that away. And again, he comes still thousands of years later through representatives, through messengers. He holds out forgiveness to all, to everyone who will believe. We crucified Christ by wicked hands. But through the crucifixion of Christ, God brought about his great purpose, his determined counsel and foreknowledge of what? Of salvation, of how to bring sinners from darkness into light, of how to bring those who are dead in trespasses and sins into eternal life in fellowship and communion with Christ. Christ died. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Amen.